Howdy everybody, my name is Leo King, and this is the Olympia Film Collective podcast. And with me today I have Misael Martinez doing audio, and then we have Dave Sidley, our guest with us. Howdy, good to be here. So, today we're going to talk about what Dave's career is like. What type of person he is? Oh boy! <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I didn't know it was gonna be a therapy session. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, um, so, can you tell us a bit about um, kind of what you've done in your career and kind of how you uh, plug in the film? Essentially? Okay. Yeah. Well, it all started. I was born in a log cabin back. In, no, no, that was Lincoln. I'm sorry. No, uh, no, I was one of those kids that had uh, you know, just a desire to make film from very early on, and uh, you know, and my uh, the format will kind of date me where I fell into it because I w- first worked in, in Super 8, you know, oh, film, yeah. you know, yeah. little 50 foot loads of Kodachrome that you'd pop into your camera. Uh, so I started out making, you know. Uh, just some shorts with kids in the, on my block where I lived in uh, Pacifica down in the south of San Francisco in California. And um, so we just did like, you know, little war stories. We did Vietnam war stories because that was kind of the t- time it, uh, frame it was. It was little late, mid to late 60s when I was doing this. Oh, and, nice. uh, but I did a variety of things, you know, like uh, just parodies of, this, of the uh, Cisco kid. And I did some stop motion kind of experiments and a little bit of animation, you know, cell animation and stuff. Just sort of dabbling, but I knew it was, it was a creative uh, um, realm that I wanted to be in. So, yeah. uh, and just trying to figure out how, to, how do you parlay that into a career later on was the harder part. You know? Yeah. But, uh, and it was a, a sort of a long circuitous road to get to the uh, creative part because I went through uh, many careers along the way. Okay. Um, I mean, I worked everything from, uh, I was a, uh, worked in the printing industry for many, many years. I worked as a, a printing press operator, graphic arts camera. Uh, I was a production manager for a couple of printing companies. I uh, did everything from that. I was a, a children's director at, a, at our church for a couple of years, running the children's programs. Um, but I always had that creative bent, and I wanted to get back to doing something creative. That was the way I was wired. That's what energized me. Um, so so the, the major turn in that direction didn't really happen until, oh gosh, I guess the sort of early 80s, when uh, I turned to my wife one day and said, hey, I want to go back to film school. She was uh, six months pregnant at the time. We were living up in Chico in Northern California, so we were going to move back down to the Bay Area and go to school at San Francisco State in their 16-millimeter film program. So, nice. Yeah, so that was the major life you know, direction. So. But, uh, what was it like going back to school? Um, well, I had, never, I had never finished. I had had a year or so at, a, at a junior college before we got married. Um, shortly after high school, I went to Diablo Valley College and they had a film program there. So I made a couple of 16 millimeter shorts there. Nice. Um, and then, you know, I forget how I got diverted away from that, but I ended up, uh, you know, sort of laying aside the film for a while. Um, and um, after we got married, because we got married in 1979, um, so the, those 16 millimeter shorts at Diablo Valley happened probably in, I don't know, 72, 73, so several years before we got married. Um, but after we got married, you know, and made the decision to move back and get into film at San Francisco State, it yep. was it was exciting slash scary. I mean, because it was a, a fairly limited program. They only took 20 students a year in, oh. into what they called the core production program. Yeah. So you had to submit films that you had made, and I made a couple of th- uh, Super 8 shorts that I submitted, along with some written material that you had to uh, submit in order to get in. And 
so we went on faith, hoping that I would get accepted, and I did get accepted. Do you remember what you submitted? Um, your, your short. Uh, the one one of the shorts I submitted was a, one that was called Lithuanian Blackjack. It was one that I made. Yeah. It was a very sort of a, a film noir kind of look with. A, it was actually my mother who kind of looked like a man <laughs> with a cap on and just the lighting. And she was playing blackjack with a, uh, a character, sort of an unseen character, and just sort of back and forth. And you, you never saw the unseen character very close either. And it was uh, one where, you know, there's an amount of uh, plays back and forth and, and it ends up the other character wins. And the character was actually a ventriloquist dummy that I had built years ago that was looked hideous. I mean, because his face was all sort of mottled and pockmarked. I mean, he wasn't a smooth skin and he had some sort of like a you know evil laugh when he finally played the winning hand and then he was actually manipulating the cards I think the last shot in the film was you saw his cards which where he had a blackjack and he won yeah. um, and then the cards started changing just at random like he could change oh. the cards to be whatever they wanted and that was why well, he's like laughing a bit of magic or something. yeah yeah so he cheated basically to okay. Win, so. okay but, uh, but that was my cool. I think the only time my mother appeared in any of my movies <laughs> nice. and uh, got you in the yeah, the program. Yeah. yeah, I think there were a couple other ones I had submitted too, but I can't remember exactly what they were, um, because part of when we when I got to the school, the, the first thing they had you do was take a, a Super 8 filmmaking workshop. So I made a number of Super 8 shorts there, because yeah. uh, I was there for three years. So the first year I was there, I wasn't in the film program yet. Yeah. Um, I, I had been accepted, but it wasn't going to start till the following year because okay. it, it was a two-year program. So so I was in, in the Super 8 short class along with getting some other general ed stuff done at the same time. So. And did you enjoy the, the the school there? Yeah, yeah, it was really a good school. It was a good time to be there. I think it was a. They had a lot of the sort of artists and res, residents they would bring in. They'd have documentary filmmakers. They'd have uh, avant-garde filmmakers would come in. So it was kind of a good mix and a very, uh, just kind of a homey feel. I mean, everybody was rooting for each other. You didn't feel like it was competition. You know, like oh, nice. everybody's trying to outdo one another. You know, yeah. it had a very like nice feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the Northern California, from what I've seen and heard. Um, the Northern California film industry is very different than the Southern California, where Southern California is very much um, about making your own space and, and, and guarding yeah. your, your territory, where yeah. the Northern California film community seems to be much more open, willing to share, willing to teach. You know, they don't care if somebody's looking over your shoulder, seeing how you do something, because, you know, you know they're there to yeah. help you and you're there to help them. So, wow. yeah, it's very cool. I heard that from a number of people that... Uh, when I later worked at, at Lucasfilm, that people who had come from working at different visual effects houses in Southern California, when they yeah. came up to Northern California, they said, wow, it's so different up here. It's a total different feel and vibe than what they'd experienced in Southern California. So I guess that was the Hollywood effect, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, so, so then you go to school and you're, what, what are kind of some of your first jobs after uh, that program? Um, well, well, during that program, I made each year you had to make a, a sort of a, a, a thesis film. Oh, okay. um, so at the, the end, of, well, I don't know if you had to, but most people did. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so my first year, I made a, I think it was about a ten or eleven minute short uh, that was called uh, um, "Current Dilemma," mm -hmm. and it had to do with a, a modern man who re relies completely on electricity. You know, so that so it was there was a sort of this electronic hum that was sort of the background noise that was always sort of appearing and reappearing, just linking him to the power that was coming through the the, the guy you know the wires the uh, the transmission lines that went to his house, 
And, uh, of course, he ends up, you know, using every electric device, you know, in the, from scrubbing his face with an electric scrubber and brushing his teeth with, you know, electric toothbrush and, you know, waking up to alarm clock, using an elect electronic exercise machine, like one of those weight belt kind of things. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and then he's, he, and he's eating the worst possible diet. He's eating, you know, greasy food for breakfast while he's watching Good Morning America on television and all this kind of stuff. Well, he goes out to his garage to try to leave for work, and he ends up... Um, uh, trying to open the garage door opener, of course, another electrical appliance, and it gets stuck halfway open. So he gets out there and tries to push it, and he ends up suffering a heart attack in the problem oh, no. in the process. Um, so then the um, the last scene is him laying in the hospital bed, again hooked up to all kinds of electronic gizmos, a, a ventilator, a breathing machine, and stuff. And he finally succumbs when they pull the plug on him, uh, and then we hear the you know the the, the flat <laughs> oh, yeah. line and, and the, the electrical hum wind down to nothing at the end. So. So that was my junior year film, and then my senior year, I made a, a I think it was about an 11-minute short called uh, Impressions. That was a story of an old uh, printing press operator who had been kind of booted out of this printing company in downtown Oakland, and he um, had come back to work as a night janitor. It was sort of a one-gag kind of joke kind of movie. It, actually, it was way too long. It should have, I re-edited it later, down to about three minutes. It was a much better film than printing it down to 11 minutes. <laughs> but uh, but basically, he, he was. Uh, coming in on the night shift and you hear some voiceover of other um, people that are working at the shop. They're kind of making fun of him. Yeah, Carl's so slow. No wonder they got rid of him, blah, blah, blah. Well, the, the punchline is, well, he walks into the print shop that night and, and he has a, a dog named Jeff that we never see. So we don't know if he's invisible or we're just missing him all the time because he's always yeah. talking to his dog named Jeff that we never see. And um, when he walks into the print shop, there's a, a it was like some sort of a, like American lithograph. I, mean, I renamed the company. It wasn't actually that. <laughs> yeah. um, but I you know, created a, a signage for the company. And then there was a poster at the top of the stairs. We came in. It was a list of all the presidents mm. of the United States. And he, he looks at Andrew Jackson on the portraits. And he says to his invisible dog, Jeff, dog Jeff you know, it won't be long until we'll be seeing my granddaddy's face, Jeff, you know. So you think, you know, because he's old and he's going to die. Yeah. So he gets up there and there's a long, sort of a montage of him cleaning and sweeping and, and you know, doing his normal work. Um, but then he walks into the press room and fires up the printing press and it's sort of a, you know, a cacophony of noise and sound and sights and images of the levers and everything moving on the press. It turns out he's printing $20 bills. So, <laughs> so, that's, that's so, that's, nice. yeah. so that's why he says to his dog, Jeff, see, I told you it wouldn't be long until... We saw my great granddaddy's face because Andrew Jackson's on the 20s, you know, and, and they're coming off, you know, sheet after sheet after sheet on the printing press. So, nice. so then he finally leaves in his Mercedes 350 SL convertible and drives off. So. Nice. But, but it was much better at three minutes than it would be at 11 minutes. So uh, yeah. yeah, I found yeah. that out after the fact. It's, you usually <laughs> yeah. discover it. Do you still have that? Um, I don't know if I have the re-edit anywhere. I have the original, uh, yeah. 16 millimeter. I need to get nice. a transfer, though. I had it transferred to VHS back in the day, <laughs> yeah. and I don't even have a VHS machine that would play it anymore, and they were pretty yeah. bad transfers. So. Yeah, quality. Yeah, so that, so that was, but you were asking about what I did after film school. Uh, my main interest coming out of film school is I wanted to be involved in camera work, cinematography. Yeah. So a lot of people I talked to in the industry, they said, well, the best way to do that is just get involved in one of the camera rental houses mm. because you'll, you'll learn to all, to all the equipment, you'll get to meet all the people that are working in the industry. So I went to work for a company that uh, I think recently finally closed their doors, Lee Utterbach uh, Camera Rentals, and they were sort of the main Aeroflex uh, dealer in San Francisco at the time. Um, so I worked there prepping, you know, 35 and 16 millimeter Aeroflex packages that would go out. I actually prepped most of the cameras that shot the uh, film Howard the Duck, one of Lucasfilm's worst productions ever. 
but they needed every camera in the Bay Area when they were shooting. It was like a hang gliding scene, and they had like 20 or 30 cameras. I forget how many cranking on it. So wow. every, every camera in the area was called in for that one. Huh. Um, but I worked there for about a year or so, and then I, I switched over to another a dealer in town that was the Panavision dealer, Cinerant West, because yeah. I figured I wanted to learn the Panavision equipment as well. So I prepped Panavision packages that were uh, going out of there. But one of the things that was sort of disheartening to me, of course, by this time I was out of school. When I started film school, I had one child, the one that my wife was pregnant with, and I told her I wanted to go back to film school. My second son was born during my junior year. Um, so I didn't really want to drag my family through the starving artist days, you know. So I'm out here, I'm commuting from the East Bay of San Francisco into the city, which is a terrible commute, yes. making like $1,000 a month or something. It was like nothing you could support a family of, of yeah. four on. And, uh, and, and it just seemed like people who had been in the industry for years and years and years hadn't really gotten anywhere. Yeah. I mean, they weren't always working. They're always looking for the next gig. It's a Toyota commercial for two days, and maybe there's a feature that got, came in town, and they worked for a couple yeah. of weeks or whatever. But they were always humping for their next gig. Yeah, so I thought, well, I'm not sure I want to do that. And about that time, my wife was saying, well, are we ever going to get a house? Because we were living in a, uh, like a duplex or, at the time, and she wanted some more space for a growing family. And I said, well, yeah, we can probably do that if I go back to printing and <laughs> start making some money on the... Uh, back in my old stock and trade printing industry. So I, I did that for a number of years just to kind of get us established, get us into a house, and did a little bit of video work and graphic design stuff on the side, which also kind of came into play to try to scratch my creative itches, you know. So you're doing both at the same time? Uh, yeah. Kind of like in your off time doing the... Yeah, yeah in all my, quote, free time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 whatever you that, can That elusive, quote, free time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. An hour here, an hour there. Yeah. <clears throat> so about how, what was, kind of how long was that in between? Uh, well, I was at the camera rental house, I was there for probably about two years. I think it was about, mm -hmm. about a year, a year plus at each one. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went to, like I said, I went back to the printing industry and did that for a number of years. Um, I think like two or three years. Um, and then, uh, and then I did the, uh, the time where I was, I was like a children's director overseeing all the kids programs at the church we were attending out in the uh, East Bay area. Um, but the creative urge just kept itching, and, yeah. and I said to my wife, I said, well, well, actually, she said, she said to me, she was offered a management position at the hospital or, where she was working, because she's a registered nurse, and she said, hey, if I took this management job, could we afford to live on my salary alone, and then you could, you know, get these creative urges, either get them going or get them out of your system once and for yeah. all, and yeah. I didn't know for sure we could do it, but I said, oh, yeah, we could do that, so, yeah. so we kind of switched, I became Mr. Mom. Yeah. Um, I stayed home and worked on, I was doing two things. I was working on screenwriting initially because that was my major interest at that time. Uh, but animation was also coming into play with, because um, uh, we didn't live too far from Pixar over in, in uh, Point Richmond at the time. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for raw talent. So I started dabbling a little bit in 3D animation, just some basic modeling and stuff, as well as doing screenwriting. Um, so I did that, I think, for about a year. Of course, that was during my, quote, free time. I found out how busy moms really get sure. because, sure. you know, I'm taking the kids to and from school. And, and how many you know, kids do you have at this point? Uh, we had two. Two kids. Okay. And we had two. My third one was born in 1890. So I think, uh, well, actually, I think we had three by this time. It was about 1990 by then. I think we had the third one. So okay. I'm, I'm taking them to and from school, watching them. I mean, uh, you know, taking care of the housework, the laundry, and all that. So all of my free time really happened when everybody else was unconscious and asleep. <laughs> so I was working at night and, you know, late into the night. So. Yeah. But uh, I think about a year in, because I was working on a screenplay that's still in progress, near 25 plus years later, <laughs> but uh, the never-ending process. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think my wife started making noises like, well, how soon are you actually going to start 
producing some income from all this creative activity. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, well, writing a screenplay, you know, it's kind of a roll of the dice. You might sell something, you might not. It could sit on the shelf for a year or so. Yeah. I kind of moved screenwriting to the back burner and said, okay, I'm going to concentrate on the animation because I felt like that, that was a skill that I could, I had had a little bit of experience in the past, both in my own uh, Super 8 movies in the past in film school, uh, where I'd done a, a part, an animated short as one of my um, six uh, Super 8 projects. And uh, I thought, well, you know, that's probably something I'd teach myself. So I sent a letter to Pixar. Yep. Uh, and I said, hey, I said, I hear you're looking for raw talent. I'm about as raw as they come, you know. How about giving me a shot? And yep. to my surprise, they actually called me, I think, within a week or two. It was shortly after Toy Story came out, the original Toy Story. And they said, uh, hey, you know, we'd love to see some of your work. What do you have to show? Yeah. I go, well, nothing. Because <laughs> I hadn't done the animation yet. So, uh, and, and I didn't even have a, a machine that could... Uh, like produce or something. Well, and back in those days, you had to render, Misa and I have talked about this, you had to render everything as a Targa file. Mm -hmm. uh, so you had to have a SCSI drive that would, you could load all your Targa images onto and play them back at speed and then transfer them to video. I mean, this is back in the early days of the video. Toaster. Yeah, just having that specialized like uh, gear, it was like a couple of thousand dollars. So yeah. Just to play it. Just short, to play it. Yeah. yeah. Short. Short, big, short animations or videos. So yeah, yeah. Wow. No, it was crazy. Anything, anything beyond that, you will need like a, to have a, like a super duper computer, like yeah. out of bounds for like Most a regular Joe, so to get. Yeah, and, and nothing that I had was super duper. I mean, it was a well. One of the, one of the decisions I had made when I decided to switch to animation, I looked to see if there were classes available locally, and there were some classes at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco, which would, be, would mean commuting back to San Francisco from the East Bay again, which is no fun. And the price of the classes were so high, I thought, well, for that I could beef up my computer, I could buy some software because I didn't have 3D software. I'd been playing with like. Uh, Caligari True Space, just doing some basic modeling when I contacted Pixar the first time. So um, I decided to take the money that I would have spent on one class at uh, Academy of Art, and I bought uh, Lightwave 3D, which was my first animation software. I bought, <laughs> I bought my SCSI drive. Um, I beefed up my, um, I think I had a 60 kilohertz, was it 60 megahertz processor, the Packard Bell computer <laughs> that I had bought at Circuit City, uh, and I beefed it up with an overdrive, so I had it clocking at 100. Megahertz. Nice. I mean, it was a screaming machine back in the day. <laughs> so, uh, so I just sort of locked myself in the cave and said, okay, I'm going to produce something with that. And, and Pixar said, well, how soon can we get something? And I'm going, well, it's, it's going to probably take me a month or so, you know, which was stupid because there was no way I was going to get anything done in a month. So, <laughs> yeah. so it ended up taking me about, I think, two and a half to almost three months to finally produce a really bad three-minute animated short, you know, start to finish, which it was, it was a painful process. I about killed myself in the process, lost all my friends. And I didn't see anybody for months on end and locked myself in the cave. But I sent that to Pixar when I finally got it done, and they said, well, you know, we can see you've got potential, you got promise, not quite there yet, but, you know, keep in touch. You know, send us another, uh, you know, updated reel when you have something more, more slash better to show. So, yeah. so uh, but, uh, but it was enough to show me that I, I, I liked doing it. I, I felt yeah. like I could do it. I knew I can get better at it. So, uh, so I went back to, to do a second short, but it said this time I'm not going to uh, kill myself. I'm going to take my time and do it right and, you know, yeah. space it out. And I think it took me about nine months to finish my second short. So, yeah. yeah. But uh, that one was, uh, well, during the course of that first year, I went to a conference in San Francisco that was called the 3D Design Conference. It was hosted or put on by a magazine, 3D Design Magazine, that I think had about a five or six year run before it got bought up by some other you know, publication company. Yeah. Um, but I went there the previous year and, and they had this thing called the Big Kahuna Award because they had uh, 
uh, submissions in different categories. You could do like, you know, it could be uh, anything that was generated in 3D, but it could be for like print media, it could be for film, it could be for television, it could be shorts, you know. Um, so I went to that and watched the competition. I said, okay, next year, you know, that became sort of like my self-imposed mandate. Next year, I'm going to have something to show in that show, no matter yeah. what, you know, come hell or high water, I'm at good, bad, or otherwise something's going to be yeah. in that show. So that became my, uh, my sort of my... Uh, target, uh, my goal line to what I was reaching for. So I started on my second short and I got it done, um, I think the, the deadline was like in February, if I remember right, February the following year. So I got it done just in time to send it to the, uh, the 3D design conference. Um, and then I also sent it out to, I think about 10 or 12 different studios, some in the Bay Area, some in Southern California, just as an example of my you know, animation skills as, it, as they were at the yeah. time. Um, and then within two weeks, I heard back from uh, Industri Industrial Light and Magic, you know, the Lucasfilm visual effects company. Oh, wow. um, and they had me in for an interview within a week, and they offered me a job within a week. So um, that was in February. I was working for them by April of that year. So, wow. Yeah, so it happened really, really fast. Again, not that I was that great of an animator, but they were, <laughs> sure. they were desperate for talent. Sure. If you can move a mouse and make something move believably on screen, <laughs> at that time, you You're could hiding. get a job. Yeah, yeah, you could get a job. So, so, so when so you, so the, so the timeline between you deciding to kind of put screenwriting a little bit to the side and then thinking that animation would be kind of your end to making money on the creative side yeah. that was about like like a year and a half or two years uh, probably pretty close to two years two years yeah. okay yeah something like that it, so, it might have been more like a year and a half I think it went from September of one year to mm -hmm. February of the the year following, so it might have been more like a year and a half. So you have somewhere. two shorts, one that's a little bit scrappy, or, yeah. and then one that you feel good about. Yeah, yeah. And then you submit it, and then you get offered at the, what's it, industrial? Yeah, industrial light and magic. Industrial light and magic. Yeah. So, uh, you know, doing uh, animation for, for feature films. Was that kind of intimidating or scary to that, or were you kind of like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was spitless. I mean, I, I mean, I felt like I just barely knew what I was doing. I had never animated a talking character because my, all my shorts were, you know, pantomime characters. Yeah. So I'd never done any dialogue or, uh, uh, or you know, dinosaurs, like from, you know, Jurassic Park had come out shortly before then too. And, yeah. you know, these amazing dinosaur animation. I, I, I actually started building dinosaurs in Lightweight 3D and doing test animation on my own just to see, well, could I animate a dinosaur on my own in case <laughs> yeah. it was called to, to do it. But uh, yeah, so it was, it was kind of crazy, but it was intimidating. But I, I really didn't, because I had a family of, you know, three kids at that point, I really didn't want to relocate to Southern California. Oh, so I was yeah. hoping something at Pixar or ILM, and there were a couple other gaming companies too I talked to in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, but ILM was, you know, by far the best choice at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about a month after I started there, I started there in April, the, um, the, the 3D design uh, competition, the Big Kahuna competition was, you know, the, the, the show was, and the Big Kahuna was part of that. And I ended up winning the Big Kahuna competition wow. as well. So I had, mine, mine was like the, the best quote animated film, and then it was also the Big Kahuna, which was the best of show. Wow. So, so that was kind of like frosting on the cake. I mean, so I was just hoping to get a job. Yeah. So then I actually became the, the one of, I think, only five or six Big Kahunas. Wow. Uh, and then they disbanded the magazine in the show. So, but uh, yeah, that was a, that was a nice honor. Even I didn't expect that. Was that before you got the the job offer? Or well, no, because because I, I I got it done in February, which was the deadline to submit for the show yeah. for the for the conference, and then I got hired on an ILM in April, yeah. and then the show itself actually didn't take place until May. So it was oh, about okay. it was about a month after I started. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, 
and, and about a month after I started, I got a call from Pixar, too, saying, saying that they would be interested in talking to me. They, oh. they didn't have a position right then, but they said, we do have some stuff coming up, so we'd like to talk to you. And I thought, well, you know, I just started here. I don't really want to be jumping ship too soon, you know, so I figured. But that definitely jump-started things, yeah. all that, all that yeah. uh, hard work and doing yeah. it right. Well, I ended up hearing back from, uh, again, they were desperate for talent, not, not because I was an amazingly great animator, but I think I sent out 10 or 11, or maybe 10 or 12, um, uh, reels, and I heard back from 11 companies, wow. you know, including cool. Disney. They were working on dinosaurs at the time. They wanted to fly me down for an interview. I said, sorry, I'm already spoken for. They just kind of got to me a little but bit you later. must have been, I mean, you, you can't sell yourself too short. You must have been somewhat of a good animator if you won the award, right? Well, one, one gal told me, she actually worked at a gaming company. When she yeah. saw my work, she said, if you could animate that well in lightweight 3D, she said, oh. you can animate in any software out there. You know? mm -hmm. And of course, uh, at that time, the uh, Maya hadn't really come into its own yet. So everything was uh, uh, soft image. You know? So that was the software of choice at the time that most of the studios, including ILM, were using. So she sent, which, because Lightwave 3D was not really very well suited for character animation. So okay. it was painful. So you were doing like a, like a, a tool that's not that finesse but using it really well yeah yeah well it was great for modeling and rendering but it just it's it's animation tools it's ik and stuff it would just wasn't robust especially when you're working on a 100 megahertz machine like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> screaming machine yeah. i think yeah. I, I think i did more screaming than the machine did probably yeah what we got comment like uh when they released like with 3d it was it was released on an amiga so it was part of the video toaster suit mm -hmm. that I also work uh, work with, uh, and it was designed basically. They're one of their first, uh, like a uh, beta testers was Babylon Five, the TV series. Mm -hmm. So their strongest suit, what the strongest suit, like uh, was doing space stuff. Yeah. So like a planetary stuff, like a star, like a flare. So, well, yeah. but yeah, but they were. Yeah, I think like Battlestar Galactica and some of those shows were. Yeah. Heavily done by Lightweight. Yeah, and, uh, and also I think Star Trek did the opening, one of the Star Trek series, mm -hmm. they, they used Lightweight TV also. So yeah, that was like, a, if you were going to do sci-fi, so you would Lightwave. choose Lightweight, but if you were to do character animation, you would go, for, uh, you would choose uh, Sophie Mass. So mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was sort of the Cadillac program. And, and it was an expensive program. <clears throat> Excuse me. I mean, at the time, I think, um, the time that I got into it, it was about $10,000 a seat for Softimage, and you had to have a, a silicon graphics computer um, to, to run it. You had to have a very, very powerful <laughs> computer at the time, which was one of the things that kind of threw me, because here I thought, I thought I was kind of slow at animation because I was working in Lightwave and, and with a, a, a 100 megahertz processor. Um, and I kept thinking, boy, this is such a slow process. I can't wait to get to ILM where they're going to have you know, faster machines and all this kind of stuff. And they were just as grindingly slow as my machine was because, you know, yeah, the software was better and the machines were better, but the models were also a lot more complex. They were heavier, a lot, a lot more, more geometry, yeah. a lot more yeah. you know, internal sort of you know, uh, inverse kinematics and sort of mathematical hookups that happen within a, a, a creature that's rigged. So everything was still slow. So I thought, yeah. well, I haven't really gotten, <laughs> gotten into the fast lane yet. <laughs> it still happened at the same slow rate of speed. And, and when I told guys how long it you know, took me to work on my short, like how many seconds a day I've get of animation done. They go, oh man, you were doing good. <laughs> you didn't know it, but I was doing good. So how was your time um, at, uh, sorry, <clears throat> dust 
industrial light work. <laughs> industrial light and magic. Just call it ILM. That's what ILM. ILM. Yeah. How how was your time at ILM? Oh, it, it was great. I mean, it was. I mean, you got to work on a lot of cool projects, and mostly you got to work with a lot of great people. That was yeah. the fun part, I think. Because, and so you uh, did move then. No, I didn't have to move. I lived. Okay, I was, so yeah, was. I lived about an hour and a half from ILM, so it was a oh, long okay. commute, but uh, it uh, it was doable. Well, some some days two hours, depending on traffic. But uh, yeah, no, it was. Uh, yeah, because they were still over in uh, um, in San Rafael at the time, in uh, sort of the, the Kerner Industrial Park area, which the front door of ILM at that time, if you walked up to it, it said Kerner Optical Research Company. You know, and the only reason you knew you were there is when you swung open the door, there was a full-size Darth Vader standing <laughs> next to the ILM logo. So then you knew, oh, I'm in the right place, you know, because it was just, it was very, you know, I mean, a lot of the fanboys knew where it was, but the general public wouldn't know it was ILM. Yeah. They just think they're doing some sort of optical research. They're designing lenses or something, you yeah, know, yeah. But, uh, but they actually had like, I don't know, six or seven or eight buildings within that industrial park that were oh, wow. part of ILM's, uh, you know, workforce, so... So yeah, how long did you work there, and kind of what was your time there like? Did you? I'm sure you learned a, a ton. Yeah, well, I learned I learned a lot. Uh, um, I worked on. I was there for about nine years, mm -hmm. and I worked on, uh, if I remember right, about 14 different films. The first film I worked on was uh, uh, Jack Frost. I call it the <laughs> yeah. best the best Michael Keaton snowman Michael film Keaton. ever made, <laughs> as far as I can tell. <laughs> Uh, so that was the first film I worked on. But then I worked on The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. I oh, worked nice. on, I uh, worked a little bit on episode one of Star Wars, more on episode two and three, the prequels, um, <laughs> which the running, most of us at ILM didn't care for them because we thought after 30 years of waiting for these sequels or prequels to come out, they were sadly disappointing. Yeah. Uh, and the running joke, I heard a number of people say, they say, well, you know, those first three Star Wars movies changed my life these last three changed it back again, you know, because it's, it just had sort of, had sort of the reverse effect. You know. but, but it was still fun to work on and just yeah. to, to be part of that process. Were but, you uh, a big Star Wars fan? Uh, yeah, I was going in. Yeah. I, I, be, I became less of one over time. But was it, what was the experience of getting to work in, getting to work on them, at least initially, before you're kind of maybe oh, yeah. not as excited? Well, well, it was fun. I mean, it was sort of, I mean, because it was within the first year I was there. I, Jack Frost, I think we finished with about six or nine months after I got there, and I switched over to working on the, uh, the uh, episode one. And they, were, they actually came, kind of came out sort of concurrently. They came out about the same time frame, I think in May of, that, uh, of the following year. Um, so I started April, it was uh, uh, 98, and I think they both came out in 99. But, uh, but, but some of the glitz and glamour sort of wore off as you saw more and more of the footage. And we weren't allowed to actually see the, the full edit. We had no idea what the Until final film was going to look like, uh, which George didn't know about, George Lucas. I and mean, he thought we all got to see the movie, but his people uh, kept us because they wanted to keep everything secret and under wraps. Yeah. We only got to see very limited cut sequences of where our shots were going to fit into. Um, so we didn't get to see it on the big screen until we went to the employee screening, and that's where most of us about fainted in our seats. Oh, no. uh, <laughs> and the, the, the famous story I was telling that one, because Mummy came out a couple of weeks earlier, and, and then episode one came out, uh, I think, around the middle or the end of May. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and my son, Matt, who was uh, 16 at the time, you know, he, he was like big, much bigger Star Wars fan even than I was. And you know, having his dad working at ILM was like, oh, I can't believe it. So I took him and a buddy or one or two buddies up to Skywalker Ranch for lunch the, the Friday before yeah. uh, the employee screening was going to happen. And they got to see George sitting at his table in the, in the little conference room where he always ate lunch. Nice. So they were so pumped. They were so excited. I, you know, I took them through the, the Skywalker Sound, the tech building, so they could see all that stuff. Um, so then the very next day, we went and saw the uh, 
employee so screening for episode one, I'll never forget. I mean, I was like so downhearted. I kept thinking, man, all that anticipation for that. And my son, Matt, said to me, he said, Dad, he says, can we go see the mummy again tonight? <laughs> I said, sure, man. I said, why? He goes, I'd like to see at least one good movie today. <laughs> <laughs> so that was from the 16-year-old Star Wars fan, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, so that was, a, that was a bit of a disappointment, you know what I mean? But yeah. it was what it was, and, you know, it's, yeah. it's all part of film history now. But, uh, <laughs> but I worked on... Uh, I also worked on Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. Oh, wow. Yeah, I worked on, um, i trying to think, Mummy, Mummy Returns. I worked on Rocky and Bullwinkle. I worked on Galaxy Quest, which is one of the favorite films oh, I actually God, worked on. Yeah, it was one of, there was only like two or three that I actually liked. <laughs> Galaxy Quest was one. Uh, Master and Commander was another one. Um, and I think The Mummy was probably one of my favorite. Here, here I thought I was not going to like The Mummy because it was, you know, it was kind of, you know, horror but you know, tongue-in-cheek kind of yeah, campy yeah, yeah. fun horror movie and i thought i'd love episode one but the opposite was true Switched, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, my expectations were definitely uh, upended on that one the then i also worked a little bit on aragon i worked on pirates of the caribbean I animated mm -hmm. davy jones and uh, a lot of the kraken you know attacking ships and stuff oh, awesome. um yeah so i don't know if that added up to 14 but there's probably a few more in there i think all oh, we did war of the worlds for spielberg and also um we redid some shots for E.T. when he was hot to redo re some of the shots that he wanted to you know, use the CG character rather than the puppet, you know, from, oh, okay, uh, yeah. you know, tinkering with the masterpieces, as it were, taking guns out of people's hands and putting walkie-talkies in because he wanted to make it less violent, you know. Oh, uh, okay. It was really stupid. You know, anytime you mess with a masterpiece, you know. Yeah, why do it? Yeah, you're wasting your time. <laughs> but it, it was a great experience. I mean, I learned a lot, became a better animator in the process, obviously. Um, yeah, and, and met so many great people. Yeah. One of the things that was really fun, I got to be, uh, I ended up working with the training department a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, because it was funny because uh, uh, ILM, it was, it was big. I mean, there's like a thousand employees there when yeah. I was there. And sometimes hired depending on the workload, how many shows were in the house at the time. And um, there was one time when they didn't have any, any animation work for me. And they said, hey, would you like to, to do some match movie? Which back in the day, this is where you, you're, you're taking your digital camera and animating it to replicate what the real world camera did when it shot the background plate that your characters or whatever you know, pieces yeah. are gonna be rendered have to lock into. Uh, and literally it was very tedious, you know, painstaking frame by frame process of animating the camera to a background plate to make sure everything locked together. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and one of the animators I was working with in that the same room, he said, he goes, you know, Dave, they can't make you do that. They can't make you do a, a match movie. You were hired to be an animator. Yeah. I go, yeah, but they could also send me home and, and, and tell me I don't make any money for that week or two or whatever. Yeah. I said, plus, I want to learn more about the process. Because yeah. the match move is what happens just before it comes to you as an animator. Okay. So the more you understand about how the match move process works and how the scene files are created, I figure that can only help you. Yeah. And it did many, many times. I had to help a lot of people troubleshoot problems when they're having a problem with a match move. They didn't, things were the wrong scale. They yeah. had the Z depth wrong or something. You know, And I would, I mean, the, the stuff I learned there just helped. So. Um, I got involved in the training department developing some of their in-house curriculum for their MatchMove software because they had their own software, like an army of 50 engineers, and they wrote their own software to do MatchMoving. Oh, wow. So I pro uh, did a lot of the online documentation and tutorials for that. So I did classes training a lot of different people from different disciplines, compositors, technical directors, on how to use the, the MatchMoving software in their own individual disciplines. Um, but I also ran a couple of... Um, like summertime, they called it apprentice animator programs, where we'd bring in animators that were graduating out of different schools, like Sheridan School up in, in Canada, or Sheridan College, or 
uh, Savannah School of Art and Design or Ringling uh, School or Full Sail. There were a number of schools that would feed into us. Uh, and I would do like an animation apprentice program for, I think it was about eight or 10 weeks during the summertime and just kind of kind of put them through their paces and you know, go with them to dailies so they can see how everything works. And a lot of them end up working on shows and get hired right out of the, right out of the gate. So that nice. was pretty fun. Uh, but one thing I saw there is I saw people that were born to animate. <laughs> And then people like me who learned to animate. And, and I knew, I said, I, I'm an animator, but I'm not that kind of an animator. If yeah. I grow up someday, maybe I'll become that kind of animator. But, you know, they were definitely born to do it, and I yeah. pushed myself to do it. You know? Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. I had a mind for yeah. it. You're saying that like, uh, there were like a thousand people there, right? Right. So most of the people think like when you're animating, you're mostly on your own. You're doing everything. That's usually what happens with most independent uh, right. animators out there. But at a big studio like ILM, they will divide everything. Like I just like we divide stuff on the set. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, no, it's definitely, and that's part of why that comment was made about oh, they can't force you to be a match to do match moving because you were hired to be an animator, because yeah. everything was very compartmentalized. You you did one thing. You were hired to be an animator, match mover. You were hired to be a technical director which is the person that would do the lighting and the rendering of images. Uh, and they'd also do simple compositing, or you'd be a compositor who would take all those rendered elements in the background plates and then uh, you know, do the final composite of the work. But everything was very compartmentalized. You, know, you did one or the other. That worked for them in many ways because you got the best of the best, yep. but it also made for a very heavy overhead, which they learned over time. That, uh, I mean, because they would have people sitting that were hired and doing nothing. Like I know there was one animator, I won't mention names or shows, but um, <laughs> there was an animator who had been hired because he was a top Disney animator, yeah. and he'd been there a year and a half and never worked on a show, huh. just because they didn't want to lose him. Okay, so, they just kept him on the payroll. Yeah, so, but, but, you know, but it boosted the overhead so high. I mean, you, know, you can't yeah. afford to do that for very long for, for, for too many people. Um, so they learned over time that they needed people that were more multidisciplinary, who could do more than one thing, because then as the, the peaks and valleys of production happen, you can plug people in to say, like, like in my case, well, we're light on animation right now, would you be willing to help out in, in the match moving department until the animation work picks up? Because you can't animate until you have a match move, so it made sense, yeah, I'll go help do match moves, push more work into the pipeline for animators, and then everybody's working more. So. Yeah. Um, but that was definitely a part of it. It was very compartmentalized, and, and people definitely had that mentality about it. But it changed over time because they realized yeah. that wasn't a good working model. M many studios were that way and learned that over time. Specialization and yeah. just being in yeah. the lane. That it, has its, it has its benefits because you get very highly specialized expert people doing one thing, yeah. but then you have a very kind of restricted workforce which can't flex and move with because yeah. of the ways of production. As yeah, I mean, because when a, a show or a, a studio like ILM where you have, um, maybe anywhere from six to eight to 10 productions going on at the same time at various stages. Some are in pre-production, some are you know, racing to find all the shots to get them you know, out and, because the movie's coming out in a month. Um, and, and all the ones in between. I mean, it was, I, mean I was always amazed and, and, and complimented many times the production management team, how they could keep such an even flow of work with all these varying productions and varying stages, some big shows, some small shows, all going off at the same time, and keep people working. I mean, they had to be pulling their hair out at times to try oh, to figure yeah. out how to do it all, because it was a horrendous task. But, and I think the nine years I was there, um, I only missed one week of work Oh, wow. where, where they said, hey, you know, things are going to be kind of slow next week, you know, or next couple of weeks, would you, would you mind, would you like to take a week off from vacation? I said, yeah, not, not a problem. So, which was kind of unheard of in the industry, because a lot of times, you know, people worked on a project, they went away for a while, they came back, and it became more and more that way, even after I left, where a lot of people were more sort of project hires as opposed to 
because I was a staff animator, and that yeah. was sort of the difference. So they just kept you busy doing something. So working in the training department, doing match moves, I animated, but, but I only missed one week of working uh, nine, nine years, and that was still paid because it was vacation time. Yeah. So it wasn't like I got laid off, so. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, but after nine years there, so that would have been about 2006, I think it was, I, um, I ended up deciding, uh, I'm getting tired of doing visual effects work, yeah. I don't know how we're doing time-wise, but um, the, I uh, decided I wanted to get more moving towards you know creating content and digital features. Yeah. And uh, Rob Coleman, who was the animation supervisor for um, all the Star Wars prequels that I worked on, had left ILM and gone to work up at Skywalker Ranch, which uh, which was where the Lucasfilm Animation Division was headquartered, that was doing Clone Wars TV series and oh, and yeah. some other things, and they had a digital feature that was just kind of ramping up. Well, I can't say ramping up. It was being developed. Yeah. Um, so I had talked to Rob, and I said, hey, I said, if, if you could use somebody up there in animation or even doing you know, layout and camera work and stuff, I'd love to make the switch and come up there. So I had literally had to quit ILM and, and get rehired by Lucasfilm Animation, uh, mm-hmm. and I went to work up at the ranch, and that was from, I think, about October of 2006 till I was only there for about six or seven months, I think, to about April of 2007. But I worked with a director that they had hired to start doing some development work on a, a, a feature that, that George had in his mind of what he wanted to do that uh, I think it eventually became Strange Magic that came out many, many years later with a different director and all the rest. But, uh, and it wasn't very successful, but it was, uh, it was a good experience. I enjoyed working up at the ranch. It's such a, a nice place to be. And again, working with some other people that I knew from ILM that had also transferred up there, but in a much smaller team. Yeah. Um, so I did that for, like I said, about six or seven months, and then... Um, and did you have a different type of job there, or was it similar? Um, I wasn't doing so much animation. I, I, there was some character animation. It was more sort of a trying to do, um, trying to help the director realize his vision for what he wanted, because he was producing like a three-minute short. It was something to help develop story and characters, but it was also to sell himself to George. Like <laughs> the George proof would of hire. concept or something yeah, like that? Yeah, it was a proof of concept. So I was doing the uh, sort of the camera moves and the blocking, so basic animation and blocking, just pose to pose in, um, in their in-house software, which George wanted everything done in their in-house software, which is called Xeno. And um, so it was doing you know, a little bit of both, a little bit of animation, a little bit of camera work, and just the combining of the two, trying to come up with some winning concept for this director. And they ended up firing the director. <laughs> so, how was that though, working with the director and like kind of taking on a different well, role? Yeah, well, it, it was fun at first, but it became relatively or quickly apparent that he didn't really know what he was doing. Okay. And not so much it was his fault. George gave him no sure. direction. There was no script. There was no outline. Okay. I never even saw what, anything written so on the page. What it was, lost. Yeah, it was sort of like, you know, he was, uh, I think, sort of set up to fail in some ways because it was like, you know, come up with something or you're out the door kind of thing. Yep. So and that's kind of what happened. So uh, when they let him go, then, you know, the digital feature development shut down temporarily. I mean, they, and they had, they had a lot of people on the team to do that. But, but they could also work on the Clone Wars TV show as well. They could switch back and forth. So I ended up going back to work on the Clone Wars doing... Uh, just again, camera work and basic animation blocking for I think about two or three weeks, maybe a month. Yeah. Um, uh, but at that time, there were a group of us from uh, ILM that decided we wanted to start our own studio. Oh, wow. uh, and we ended up uh, renting a space up in uh, uh, Petaluma, up in the North Bay area. Yeah. And um, we had hooked up with uh, an Australian director and some of his, 
sort of an entourage of investors and, and you know, producer types that he'd been involved with on other projects. Um, and they helped us to get our uh, studio started up in Petaluma. So that was in, I think, April of 2007 we started. So you and how many about people? There, there were eight, eight of us all together that launched out of okay. ILM or Lucasfilm. Like I, they were coming out of ILM. I was coming out of Lucasfilm Animation because I'd made that switch, you know, a gotcha. few months earlier. Gotcha. So then how was this? It was it was a wild and crazy time. I mean, we were we were doing development on a project that they you know had been de uh, developing for a number of years. They had a script that they weren't happy with, so they were still uh, redoing the script at the time. Uh, they're still redoing the script now as we speak here in 2019. <laughs> this, this film has still not been made. Sort of the story of the way things go in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, but eight of us uh, started, and then uh, we grew the studio. I think we were up to about 14 artists. Uh, about a year and a half later, again, we started April of 2007. By November of 2008 is when the market crashed. You know, we had the huge financial downturn, the big recession. Uh, money dried up. Our investors' money oh, dried up. Yeah. We went from a studio of 14 one day to three of us making, uh, working for no pay the next day. Because yeah. three of us stayed and said, okay, well, we're going to try to see if we can get this thing off the ground and, and keep it going somehow. Yeah. So, um, and we eventually we started getting some work in, some different type of work, and we were able to start paying ourselves again over time and get back to a, a, a fairly decent salary within a, a year or two. But it was, it was, it was true startup. I kept telling the guys, I said, I said this startup that we're in now is not a startup. Yeah. I mean, we're fully funded. Yeah. You know, it's not like we're scrapping for dollars and projects along the way. I said we're fully funded, and and, and somebody else is paying the bills. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but. Um, you know, so when everything collapsed, it was just the three of us left. I said, now we're in startup mode. This is what startup really looks like, where you know, you're putting a lot of sweat equity into the thing because yeah. you know, if you don't do it, you're not going to get a paycheck. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, so hunger is a good motivator. You know? yeah. <laughs> so that was for about a year or two, and then you started to be able to make kind of pay yourself. Like yeah. You yeah, we started getting like we did you know, just like commercials. We started doing some... Uh, um, um, Sort of some visual effects for, well, let me say visual effects, but animation and graphics for different sort of trade show kind of things. I mean, we just, we take whatever it just we could get. just the three of you still? Uh, yeah. Well, we ended up growing, we ended up hiring another modeler, uh, another sort of technical director guy. We had a, a, a gal that was a production manager, sort of the studio manager. So I think we got back up to about six or seven people regular by the time I left in 2013. Well, by, by two th 2013, things started to cool off again. We were having a hard time getting work and keeping all of us paid, so we ended up having to let the two or three people, well, one had already left anyway, but I think we had two others that we had to kind of let go and say, well, we just don't have the work for you at this time, so we'd love to bring you back if we can, but that's kind of uh, when I stepped away from the studio as well, because my partners, they needed uh, the steady paycheck. My wife was working that's why it's good to marry a registered nurse. I always find work. Um, true, true. So uh, I said, well, you know, you guys keep going. You know, if, I can still work from home, which I did a lot of times anyway. I said, if you need me to come back, I can come back. If not, I'll, uh, you know, I'll figure out something else to do. I've got some other creative projects that I want to work on too. Some screenwriting still <laughs> and some other uh, puppet uh, development stuff. And um, so that was in 2013. And then uh, about a year uh, well, I guess about three or four months later, I started working for another, actually part of the, the same group that, that came out of ILM to start the first studio. Yeah. Um, they had started their own studio back down in the old Kerner buildings where, where ILM started before they moved to the Presidio, which happened, I left out that highlight along the story. They had moved eventually from the, uh, Presidio, or from the, uh, the industrial complex in uh, or Park in San Rafael down to the Letterman Digital Arts Center that George built down in uh, 
Presidio of San Francisco. So, um, so some of those original guys had started another studio in the old ILM offices and studio space on Curter. Uh, so I went, worked for them about the last year before I relocated up to Washington. So nice. Yeah. And what, what and what was the is there a reason that you relocated up here? Did your wife have family, or you have um, family? Or? Well, I had a daughter who lives in Portland and a grandson down in Portland. I have a, oh, okay. a son and daughter-in-law and had one grandchild at the time. Two more have appeared since we got here. So, yeah, so it was kind of a family move. My wife was looking for something different. She had worked at the same hospital for 32 years down in the, uh, in the Bay Area and just was looking for a change of pace, something different. So she found a job up here at... Uh, at St. Pete's here in Olympia. Oh, nice. So it was kind of a nice change for her. And plus we were trying to find a place where we could bring her folks up with us too, because my parents had passed away many years ago and um, her folks were having you know health issues and stuff and they wanted to be closer to us. So we said, well, if we can find a place uh, where we can keep, you can have your own space, but be close enough that you can you know, have us as much or as little as you want us to be part of your day and activity, yeah. would you want to do that? And they jumped at the chance and said, yeah, absolutely. So it was sort of a, a three, uh, a three-pronged motivation to move up to to Washington State. So, yeah, and we're glad we did. We how have you, we did. Yeah, how have you liked it here so far? So far, I've liked it. I've I've was born and raised and lived in California my whole life, mostly in the Bay Area. So down there, you don't even know what season it is generally. You, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a little warmer in the summertime, a little cooler in the wintertime, or rainier. <laughs> yeah. But up here, you know, I'm shoveling snow off the walk in the driveway sure. sometimes during the winter time, and looking forward to springtime after the long gray days of, of oh, yeah. winter and stuff. You, <laughs> yeah. you really start to appreciate the seasons, you know. Yeah. So uh, I've enjoyed it a lot being up here. It just it's a beautiful place to live. So okay. I didn't realize how dry and desolate California until I had to go back for a visit and I go, wow, I used to live here and I thought it would look pretty lush and now it looks like it looks like a flat no man's land at places. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, no, perspective. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah it definitely definitely changes your perspective. So And how uh so now that you're here, I know you've been um coming to the OFC for a while. Mm -hmm. How long about have you been coming to the OFC? Oh, I think I started coming last I think it's almost been a year. I think it was last October, I think, when I first contacted Jeff and just started. I mean, because since we've been up here, I've been doing a few sort of personal creative projects that are not necessarily film-related, although doing a little bit of writing and outlining of stories and stuff. But uh, yeah. um, I just said, you know, I need, I need to get back to it. I want to get back to what, you know, the, the, the passion that drove me from the beginning. I want to get back to it. And I kind of got sidetracked up here with lots of home improvement projects. I mean, you know, buying a new place, getting it ready, landscaping, putting in retaining walls, painting things, installing kitchens in the little house for the in-laws and all this kind of stuff. I felt like I was a full-time maintenance guy, yeah. landscaper. Um, so when the dust started to settle from that stuff, I thought, well, plus I'm watching grandkids a lot of times, one or two days a week as well. So uh, as things started to uh, calm down there, I thought I want to get back into the, kind of the creative realm, the creative driver's seat again. So, yeah. so I looked online just to see what was going on, and I found the Old Film Collective and contacted Jeff, and he said, oh, yeah, we'd love to have you. So I joined in and started, you know, coming to the meetings and got involved, involved with the, the, the 253 competition and, yeah. you know, part of uh, James Clark's team on, uh, on his short. And you're helping uh, Brendan Thompson with the Yeah, the, yeah. The we're, 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 we're working on a, a, Dor a Dorian and... <laughs> Marlin, uh, you know, fish head story. <laughs> I don't know what he actually called it, fishtail. I'm not sure what the name of the project is. But I'm not sure what he's named it yet. I call it Dorian Marlin. Yeah, Dorian Marley. Um, what, uh, is there any kind of projects you're working on uh, that you're excited about or, or like that are, that are film related? 
Um, I've, got, I've always seemed like I've got a few things on the, the front burner, the back burner. I've got a couple of, of, of screenplays I'm still trying to work on, trying to get them outlined. Yeah. Um, ones that could be, you know, ones that are probably way too big that, I mean, could be done locally, but uh, I've got one or two that could be like, you know, sort of independent sort of films that could be probably done with local talent and quote, fairly minimal budgets, you know, because yeah. mm-hmm. um, that's kind of what only film collective is about, you know, trying to, to uh, support independent filmmaking in the area. Yeah. Um, so no, nothing quite ready for prime time yet. Um, Again, one of my other creative pursuits that I started, actually when I, got, when I stepped away from our, uh, our studio down in Northern California, is I started working on shoulder puppets. The 3D printing technology had just sort of come into play and I, I started working with 3D printing and wanted to build a, uh, an articulated parrot puppet that I could have on my shoulder. Yeah, so, I remember I saw that. Yeah, yes. I think you've seen it before. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I started working with that and that, it was kind of cool because you know, while I stepped away from the studio and wasn't making any money, I felt really energized to get this project done. And it, I ended up starting that, I think, in, uh, in February of, of 2013 when I left the studio. And again, I set myself a deadline. There was a Maker Faire coming up in, I think, in May down in San Mateo in the South Bay area. So I thought, I'm going to get something done. I'm going to get this puppet done in time for that. So I, I, it was, again, I felt like I was making my first animated short again. Nice. I was locking myself in my, in my office and working on modeling parts in Maya and then outputting them and, and, uh, and sending them to my printer. Um, so I ended up building my first uh, Petey the Parrot, I called him, and uh, took him with me down to the uh, Maker Fair, and, and people loved him. And people loved him. Everybody wanted to buy one, but he was not quite ready for prime time yet. So here we are six years later. He's still not quite ready for prime time because I haven't had as much chance as I want to develop it and make it what I want it to be in terms of articulation, range of motion, quietness of you know, the mechanisms, all that kind of stuff. I'm kind of a perfectionist, so I'm not going <laughs> to send something out there until I really, think it's really ready. Yeah. So takes time. You can't rush greatness, you know. No, you can't rush it. And you can't rush me either, so, <laughs> yeah. by, co- by coincidence. Yeah. Well, the script's been in the work. You were saying one of your scripts has been in the works for the last yeah. so many years. Yeah it's, yeah, it's it's like a huge, it's a World War II drama. I mean, it's, it's, it's like. Well, it's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> it's a period piece. It's, you know, it's going to be expensive visual effects, Big. you know, for airplanes or ships and stuff. So, yeah. you know, I go, well, that one may never see the light of day. So. <laughs> But uh, that was the one that sort of started is, is there the resurgence. Still being made on it? Um, very little. Very little. Uh, I've had some discussions with other writers about it and yeah. kind of talked about where I was and where I might go with it. But uh, nothing that has forced me back to the uh, to the uh, computer to start really rehashing it yet. You know, it's like it's, I mean, stories. You know, especially when you have it fairly well thought out to begin with, it's really hard to backtrack and go back and say, how do I retool this? How do I tear it apart and kind of start over again? Or, or you know keep pieces that I like and, and reinsert new pieces and how are they going to fit together and stuff. So yeah. it's a, it can be a, like surgery, you know. So this, this will be my last question. Uh, what? Finally, your last Sorry. question. <laughs> <laughs> I think my meters run out. No, I, <laughs> um, what, what, if, would there be any advice that you would give to like an up and coming animator? Um, if someone was interested in, an up-and-coming uh, animator. Starting yeah. to animate. Well, yeah. Well, to me, the key to animation, and, and I think that's why I survived in the in the industry, and you know, and even got in the time that I did. Um, animation is about creating the illusion of life. You know, in fact, there's a, a, a Disney book. You know, it's called The Illusion of Life. It's, it was one of the master sort of thesis on uh, on, on 2D animation. You know, the draw and sell animation that Disney was known for. Um, and what you're doing as an animator is you're literally you're breathing life into a, 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 
you know, a cell drawing, or in case of digital realm, you're, or stop motion, you're, you, know, you have a stop motion puppet, you're animating frame by frame. In the computer realm, you're animating a, a digital character frame by frame. Uh, and what you're trying to do is to breathe life into that character. So you're trying to make the audience believe that character thinks, moves, acts, reacts, um, lives in a world where there's gravity. I mean, so, you know, sort of the, the mechanics and the dynamics of a character are very important. Um, and part of what a good animator does is always observes life to see, you know, what, what does it look like? You know, because part, part of what animation is, is making, especially in, uh, in visual effects animation where I ended up with Industrial Light and Magic, unlike Pixar where it's sort of cartoony animation and you can push things and you can make people totally lock and stop and, you know, and they can have much broader ranges of, of motion, and, uh, uh, motion and posing and, and extremes, everything in visual effects has to look real. Because yeah. it's, you know, your character is going to be alongside, whether it's a dinosaur or General Grievous, I animated in uh, one of those Star Wars movies, whichever one it was, the second one, third one, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, they have to fit in the world with all the, the real world characters. So they have to move at the right speed. They have to, they have to just look believable. Yeah. So part of being an animator is just observing life to see, you know, what, what looks real, what, and what, what sets this person apart from that person in terms of the way they walk, the way they move, the way they balance. You know, you know, what does a limping person look like opposed to somebody who's walking with a healthy gait? I mean, all those kind of things. Yeah. Um, so being a good observer of life is sort of key to be an animator because then you can breathe life into whether it's a, a, a stop motion puppet, if you're doing a, a 2D drawn animation or animating a digital puppet in the computer yeah. um, because that's what they're looking for. And that's literally, I mean, my first film that I got in the door with ILM was a story of like a little uh, kind of a marionette puppet, you know. Uh, and that's what people told me. They said, I believe that character. You, you, you made me believe that he was in that world yeah. and he was working, I mean, he was thinking, he was reacting, he was, you know, he was interacting with things. I mean, because that's a big part of animation too. Uh, you're not isolated in the world. You have to be able to interact with other things within that world. So learning how to interact with other props or characters, whether or uh, things that are in the background plate or things that you add to the, uh, you know, like a prop in the character's hand, you have to learn how to do all that too whether it's taking off of a hat or holding a gun or whatever it is, you know, there's an interaction with their, with their world that has to be there to make them believable as well. So, yeah, so, so observe life. You're, you're, you're given permission to observe everybody anytime yeah. and, and <laughs> stare and, and not apologize. Yeah, yeah. You're an animator. <laughs> I'm an animator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been permission to watch it's my you. my job. It's, I'm not being snoopy. I'm not, a, <laughs> I'm not intruding. I'm just observing life, you know, so, yeah. Awesome, thank you. Yeah. Misty, you have anything to say? Yeah, no, I was just going to say thanks to you. Uh, also, <clears throat> probably 99.5% of what we have been talking about this animation, but I saw, I have seen a couple of Dave's scripts, and they're awesome, they're good. So uh, when we were doing, when I was directing the 250 competition, I remember seeing one of your scripts, and it was like a, this one is so it was in my <laughs> it wasn't uh, on our short list yeah. Yeah, uh, we ended up choosing the other one because it was more suitable for the competition we uh regarding like locations time frame but yeah but he's also he he's also like a skilled like a, as a screenwriter he right now is leading the screenwriters group here at the OFs uh, at the olympia film collective so uh, it's yeah. important to make a, like a footnote on, on this oh, as yeah. well so yeah. well thanks Misa. yeah that's the i mean the screenwriting is something i've always wanted to, to do more and more of and become better and better at it's been sitting on the back burner 
too long during different points in my life and my career. So I, think, I appreciate the words of encouragement because sometimes you, you, you get back to it and you go, I don't know if I can do this. This is just so, it's the battle of the blank page. It's just so hard, you know? So uh, I appreciate that encouragement. So we all need that. That's why it's cool to be part of the film collective. We can come together and kick each other in the butt and, and keep each other moving forward. So that's what it's all about. You can't do it by yourself. Well, I've struggled to do it by myself a couple times along the way, but it's a lot easier when you've got somebody that's encouraging and giving you feedback and some attaboys or, you know, what the heck yeah. are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> what <laughs> were you thinking? No, I completely agree. Yeah. Collaboration. So, yeah. At the Olympia Film Collective, we have the screenwriters group, the documentary, uh, documentary yeah, filmmakers group. We have the marketing committee, studio committee, finance, uh, resources committee. Education committee. And education committee. So, so. so if any of those things even, uh, you know, spark any interest at all, they're open for anybody to come to and just check out, you can sit in, um, and all those meetups are on the calendar. Uh, all right, thank you guys, and have a good day. Thank you, Dave. Oh, thanks, Dave. Thanks, thanks for really thank awesome. you, Nisa. Okay, thank you.